Hello, and welcome to this week's segment of In Bed with Susie Bright. I'm Susie Bright, and I hope this sample of my show gives you a very sweet taste of what we do every week. We talk about sex, politics, culture, as well as interview some very smart and sexy people and answer our incredibly brilliant listener emails, <laughs> plus a whole lot more. It's a conversation about sex that I hope you'll be eager to join me in. For now, here's a listen. This week, we continue our conversation with Katha Pollitt, who's one of my favorite feminist and sexual politics writers. I wanted to talk to Katha about a phenomenon I notice happening in today's abortion clinics. That is, that they are filled with pregnant but very judgmental women. One very big issue, which I feel like we have descended into the dark ages, is abortion. And uh, speaking of things I've been reading recently, uh, some uh, writers on the Alternet Network, which publishes yeah. a lot of progressive stories, they did something called, uh, I don't know, it was like The Sad, Lonely Place at the Abortion Clinic. I saw clinic. that, yeah. And it was all about how um, abortion clinics have just taken such a demoralizing hit in terms of their staff and what they've been through with American politics, having their health issue become, you know, this battering ram of the moral majority and, and you know, Karl Rove's right wing and so on. And you find it in the milieu of the patients who come for ab abortions. Instead of the sense of sisterhood and a feeling that I certainly was raised with that this can happen to every woman, and it usually does, and we feel so sympathetic to each other, and isn't it great to be in some place where we can be supported and, you know, move on with our lives and look forward to the kind of families that we're already mm -hmm. a part of? Instead of that, you have a place where they interviewed a lot of women, and uh, the clients would say, well, I'm not in favor of abortion, and other women who get abortions are sluts, and what happened to me total aberration. It's almost as if they're denying that they're pregnant and they're getting an abortion. It's like, this isn't me. I am the exception to everything. Everyone else in here is just irresponsible. Yeah, they're irresponsible. And I just read this just feeling cold inside. Uh, even And I found that even the comments in response to this internet story, because of course they have lots of comments, even the people on this quite left-wing place were bitching about whether these women had, you know, taken care of themselves and if only they had done the right birth control and if only they would just stop being so stupid and, you know, waving their panties around in their air. I, mm -hmm. I can hardly comprehend this. Talk about feeling like a, an old duffer who isn't with it. What, what has happened? Well, um, I don't think this is new. I thought that was an excellent article by uh, Carol Jaffe and her co-writer, whose name I can't remember. And Carol Jaffe is a very great uh, sociologist whose field is abortion. So this is, I think, you know, very good article. But it isn't new. There's a, an expression um, that, uh, you know, uh, rape, incest, and me, the three exceptions. <laughs> you know? um, and so the idea that, yeah, I have special circumstances, but all those other people don't. We don't just find this with abortion, do we? Um, it's pretty common. Um, but yes, there, I think there, uh, the 
the anti-abortion movement has been very good about stigmatizing abortion, making people feel tremendously guilty about it, feel isolated. A lot of women don't live in, you know, a subculture like you did where, I, uh, you know, there's you can talk about it. Um, they live in families that are would be very upset, um, and uh, they wouldn't certainly wouldn't want their neighbors and coworkers to know, um, and I think that all translates to well, I'm doing this thing I think is wrong, or everybody else thinks is wrong, so you know I must be different. And I thought the thing that they were saying was that it used to be more uh, that you before you had an abortion there would be a, a group discussion, there would be real counseling. And some places still have that. I want to recommend a uh, wonderful website to anyone out there listening called um, abortion, abortion Clinic Days. It's www.abortionclinicdays.com. And uh, it's two abortion uh, work clinic workers, counselors, who talk about all the issues relating to their practice and who comes in and, you know, they spend hours with people. But I think that there are still some very feminist clinics left, but uh, a lot of abortion places, it's like going, it's like a dentist's office where you you don't sit around and talk about, you know, your teeth with the other people. Um, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a very sort of functional place um, mm -hmm. and they just sort of process you. And there's one thing though, you know, a lot of uh, abortion clinics do often have like a social worker attached to them. Now, that social worker spends a lot of time raising money for the abortions of women who can't afford them. That's right. And they have to do this. It is so tragic uh, calling the uh, abortion funds that exist around the country, which your readers can, listeners can find at um, nationalnetworkofabortionfunds.org. And make a donation online, but you know you're the you're the social worker. Someone you'll get fifty dollars here and a hundred dollars there, and uh, that takes that's like a whole salary being, you know, spent on raising this money. Now, if that money was there, that person would have more time to uh, do the kinds of things that Carol Joffe and her co-writer talk about, of like, you know, facilitating these discussions and, you know, really kind of having uh, a little bit of politics there. Um, I think there's one other thing. I know I'm talking too long, but there is one other thing, which is I think the, uh, the culture of the abortion clinic is the culture of medical care. It is not the culture of we want everybody to be sure that everybody knows how to vote, you know. Uh, <laughs> Um, and they're very, you know, the good places are very nurturing, but they are not going to lay a political trip on the patients. That goes against their ideology any more than, uh, you know, if you go to the gynecologist, you don't, you, they don't do that either. No, it's it's very true. I mean, of course, I, I'm the type who sort of wishes there was a little bit more politics, but I understand from their professional standpoint, it's so important not to be judgmental and make assumptions. What I often feel um, kind of awestruck about, I wonder if you've given this any thought, is we have this climate that's been around for as long as I can remember where abortion is still considered like that something went wrong instead of this is very likely to happen in a woman's life if she's sexually active. No matter what she uses for birth control, 
women's bodies just have this funny little way of getting pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> of reacting to live sperm, you know. <laughs> this utter incomprehension of our fertility. And at the same time, uh, it, look at the numbers of women who can't get pregnant and the fertility business. And, and, you know, what I'm talking about in vitro fertilizations and people just desperate, desperate, desperate who can't get pregnant. Do you ever kind of look at those two things, you know, the hostility towards birth control and abortion, and then the the crazed hunger and, you know, millions of dollars, you know, trying mm-hmm. to have a baby when you can't? How How do you hold both those things in our current political atmosphere? Well, I think it's very interesting that the sort of uh, infertility community, as well as the disability rights community, which comes at abortion, you know, has a different, you know, perspective on abortion, Mm -hmm. different interests, are not anti-choice. You know, that you find, I know many, many women who have gone through infertility uh, treatments. None of them came out of it saying, yeah, and if only those sluts didn't have abortion, I could adopt their baby, you know? Uh, You're absolutely right. That's um, a good point. Uh, and, uh, no, if um, anything, they're more sympathetic. And, you, you, you know, I, I, also, I keep waiting for uh, the disability rights movement to say, oh, my God, you know, when women have abortions of uh, defective fetuses, mm-hmm. that's me. You know, they, they're aborting me. They don't um, They're aborting that. my community. They don't say that. And uh, I think that's very interesting. And that shows that people can hold many complicated ideas in their head at the same time. And one of those ideas is, I'm undergoing this. She's undergoing that. Uh, these are separate situations. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what makes I get so mad when people uh, sort of talk about adoption as the solution to abortion. How is adoption the solution? I mean, solution to, you know, people having abortion. Right. Um, how is that a solution? That's having a baby. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, the idea that you would have a baby and then you just sort of send it out into the world. Um, this is, I think in modern America, this is never going to become a major, uh, you know, uh, player in the <laughs> in in the uh, world of unwanted pregnancy that that you know we sort of tried that we tried in the fifties uh, a system where you know hundreds of thousands of women were had to give up their children um, and many of those women they could not have held, taken care of those children and they didn't want to take care of those children but still it was not a happy situation no and nowadays we hear so many stories sometimes a uh, well, a very well-known one was uh, the singer and songwriter Joni Mitchell right. being reunited with her daughter and discussing with the public that giving her child up for adoption was the saddest uh, experience of her life. And their reunion was obviously her happiest. But uh, um, I'm glad you're you're pointing that out, that um, the, the irrationality of people who'd like to polarize these things and make it sound so simple, it's just never working. You told me that your daughter, Sophie Pollitt Cohen, is uh, a best-selling author and is just putting you in the shade with <laughs> her, her her monumental book sales. And she, she <laughs> I'm saying this because I'm trying to ready myself for this to happen to me. <laughs> but uh, she has a book that she wrote with her friends called The Notebook Girls, yes. which is oh. about uh, high school young women's experience and. Did you learn something from reading those diaries that you actually hadn't known from raising your daughter yourself? 
in terms of their social sexual awareness in high school? Well, I should say my daughter wrote uh, a book called The Notebook Girls, which is uh, the diary, a group diary of her life at Stuyvesant High School that she wrote with her three best friends, uh, Courtney Toombs, Lindsay Newman, and uh, Julia Bascom. And it was very popular among other teenagers. Um, Grown-ups tended to be rather horrified. Why? Well, well, you may ask. I mean, this, nothing that they did was so unusual. And, you know, this is part of talking about, you know, sort of keeping things in different, um, different boxes, is that even no matter how much people read in the newspaper about, oh, yeah, the kids are all smoking pot or they're, you know, they're sexually experimenting, parents do not want to believe this about their own children. And if somebody else's child is doing that, they can be extremely judgmental. Um, and there is this kind of unaware, you know, there is a kind of denial out there. But the way I felt about the book was that even if you sort of made an abstract of a list of all the things the kids were doing, and it might sound like they were up to a certain amount of mischief, mm-hmm. it really wasn't that big a deal. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know they were good kids. Uh, they were all got terrific grades, and this. Oh, I have to say, they they all went to great colleges, um, and they're all nice, interesting, humane, lovely people who I think in ten years or twenty years will be, you know, lovely mothers. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, and all, all the rest. You know, I, you know? T- I take that for granted. I suppose what I'm wondering is, I have always felt compassion. And comparison, compassionate comparison to my own daughter and her friends' stories of their lives because I wanted to be sexual when I was in high school. I was totally interested in, you know, what, you know, I wanted to try everything and I wanted to know what it was like. And, you know, I wondered what it would be like my first time doing this and my first time doing that. Of course, I wanted to be cool and do it right, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know. You want to be this perfect lover, even though you've only practiced kissing your pillow. You know, all that self-consciousness and feeling, you know, that sense of hating to be teased for being virginal or not knowing what a certain drug is like. And not because you want to get high, but you just don't want to be teased for not knowing. All those those insecure feelings you feel as a teenager, Mm -hmm. my heart just leaps out of my chest like, oh, of course I remember that. It's as if it was yesterday. And I wanted to create some comfort. I suppose what I'm I'm kind of grappling with was what were my ideas when I was, I don't know, pregnant or when my daughter was little, imagining what I would say or what I would do, and then faced with the reality. It, you know, how, what's the difference between those mm. two things? Did you think to yourself, uh, you know, before, before you had it? a grown-up daughter, did you think, well, you know, when she wants to, you know, have her first lovers and so on, I'm just going to be the greatest, you know, sexual women's lib mom, and I'm going to say, of course, darling, do you have the pill? You know, uh, just tell me if everything goes fine. Or, or Or did you find yourself saying, gosh, I hope she waits and waits and waits for as long as possible, and how am I going to explain that? I mean, what did you, how did all those, your mother's voice, your grandmother's voice, your voice, how did it all sort um, itself out. I always talk to Sophie about 
at I, at what I thought was a you know in an age appropriate way mm-hmm. about um, her body and all that. And you know she saw me putting in tampons when she was like two, mm-hmm. and she'd say, "What's that?" And I would explain to her what what it was, and so on. Um, and uh, you know I don't want to uh, you know uh, invade her privacy more than I've already done in my writing, but uh, <laughs> you know, but. Uh, I mean, now she tells me things. And she says, "Don't put this in your writing." Oh, okay. <laughs> says, I'm sorry. No, but but I just want to say that you know I did feel as she entered her sort of puberty years, middle school. I did feel you know the important thing is I want my daughter to reach adulthood safely, mm-hmm. and I, the way I want to do that is I want to keep the lines of communication open. I gave up some of the criticisms that I might have otherwise made, like when she would go to school dressed in an extremely uh, <laughs> provocative or, you know, you know, with with little skirts that were the size of Band-Aids and wearing as much, you know, eye makeup as a Polish shop girl, you know, in, <laughs> under communism, you know, where they just sort of lay, put it on with a trowel. Um, and I just said, you know, I'm not going to have my motherhood my mother-daughter experience revolve around what she's wearing. That's really stupid. I don't want to be the prison guard here. And life will correct this because basically you dress the way other people dress as, you know, mm-hmm. after a while when you kind of figure it out. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, and um, so I felt I, I want her to know that I'm on her side. I talk to her about birth control a lot, but I think, you know, what a lot of people do is they sort of wait to have the talk, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you wait to have the talk, it's usually... You're, Too late. <laughs> it is, because they are, as somebody said to me, uh, 15 is the new 17. Well, maybe now 14 is the new 17. I think 15 is the new 25. Yeah, maybe. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I am on a different timetable than, <laughs> than young people now. But, uh, so I, I feel like you you have to talk about it all the way through. I talked to her about abortion when she was a child. I would say, you know, it's like when the when the baby is just a little seed mm-hmm. and it's sort of like an acorn. It's not an acorn isn't a tree and a seed isn't a baby. And if you're not ready to be a mother, you don't want to be a mother, you can have an operation and you won't the pregnancy will will stop. Mm-hmm. Um and I just got in there really early. <laughs> um, and I think that's just really important because they are always getting, they get a lot of bad messages from the world. They get messages about anorex, you know, about they have all those body image, image issues going on. Those are very real. I mean, I don't know about you, but I maybe knew one person in my entire youth who was possibly anorectic. Mm-hmm. And now it's it really is very common, um, even though you know someone like Christina Half Summers will say that's another feminist victimology cooked up. I mean, you know it is a problem, and even if they're not anorectic, they they they're obsessed with exercise. They they're they're very conscious of their body in a way that's not always pleasurable. You know about yeah. Good. No, it's uh, I I mean I can't tell you how many times I. I threaten to get a plane ticket and get out of this country because I just say, you have to understand there's other places in the world where this uh, concentration, this fixation on the part of middle-class teenagers, it, it, it's irrelevant. It has, it has no place. And probably the best experience would be for you or your friends or you know all these people who are just so miserable to be someplace where no one is even giving a damn. You know, and and just to have that ah, culture shock, <laughs> I mean, I crave yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you 
um, when you think about upcoming U.S. electoral politics, and I don't know whether you just feel like flushing the toilet, <laughs> turning the page, or you, or you devote yourself to it, how do you picture this, you know, where, where we see this very heavy player like Hillary Clinton, a woman, you know? It's not Betsy Ross sewing a flag. It's a real mm-hmm. <laughs> woman running for president. And yet we can expect her to be running on the classic Clinton centrist campaign where you sort of put down everybody, you know, minorities, feminist issues, gay issues will be like insulted and ignored as much as possible until the last possible second when you get out the vote. You know, like it's not it's not exactly Sylvia Pankhurst and, you know, uh, you know, some great feminist leader that you follow into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you see those things going? I mean, Molly Ivins famously said before she died that she just wanted everyone to know that if she made it to 2008, she wasn't going to support Hillary. She didn't care, you know, female or not. Well, that was before Hillary voted against um, the war appropriations bill. Mm-hmm. So oh, I mean, you've had a change of heart in the last couple what? of weeks. <laughs> no, I'm, well, no, I'm saying, you know, people say, you know, oh, she's an opportunist. But what is an opportunist can be somebody who actually listens to the voters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh-huh. um, and, and I think most, poli- I mean, most po- all politicians are opportunists. They have to be. I am not, like, making up my mind totally because I think there are strengths and weaknesses in the top three Democrats. Gore may still come in. That would change everything. Um, I mean, I look at it, you know, but, but when I think... I, I will say, and I have written a column about this, where I said, you know, if people don't stop saying sexist things about Hillary Clinton, I may just have to vote for her. <laughs> because I do feel that so much of the hostility toward her from the right, center, left, wherever, has to do with the fact that she's a woman. That is why she is a polarizing figure. And she is not cut any of the slack the other people get. And she doesn't get the credit that the others would get for the same thing. For example, I do believe that under Hillary Clinton, we would have good government in that we would have uh, expertise, would have the appropriate role. Science would be important. People would get jobs. <laughs> what? Act- people who would get jobs who actually knew the field that they were expected to be working in. Well, you're comparing you know? her to Bush, and you might uh, well, say that I about am. any of the Democratic candidates. Yeah, but I'm saying she's she's a real expert. Um, she's very interested. That whole sort of technocratic policy wonkery thing that, you know, was has sandbagged the Democrats in many elections mm-hmm. with people, technocrats like Dukakis, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or Mondale, that, you know, we've now had almost eight years of let's just have an idiot run the government. <laughs> you know, let's just, let's just, de- you know, let's just ha- have rampant cronyism um, and political interest run the show. Well, we've seen, you know, now I think expertise might look better. Um, and then, okay, then you say, okay, well, what about the other ones? Well, okay, Obama. Obama has had, what, two years of, politi- of actual national political office. That's not a lot. Um, he he sounds great, but I don't feel that I really know him very well. Um, I mean, he might be great. I might, if he, you know, I, I will vote for any Democrat. Oh, um, I will. I will. I think. I, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, I I get. I'm tortured. I'm I'm one of those tortured voters who uh, who just probably 
what I say when people ask me. I say I'd like a lot more attention on the rest of American democracy than I do on the presidential office because these these spokes models who end up being president are backed up by very powerful people who are running the country. So I, you know, I always have my little my little socialist thing there lurking in the background saying big picture. But I I'm glad to hear you say this because I am also susceptible to the the bitch baiting that happens with Hillary Clinton and it is it's the one time that I I want to say shut up, you know, you have no business thinking you know what she's been through and uh, it's that is the very like tip of the knife that elicits my my sympathy. We run out of time. Katha, thank you so much for being with me today. It's a dream come true. Oh, Susie, <laughs> it's been fun for me too. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for checking out this week's segment of In Bed with Susie Bright. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to my whole show at www.audible.com slash Susie Bright. And Whatever you like, please let me know what's on your mind. You can always email me at susie, S-U-S-I-E, at audible.com. Clits up.